Today we are going to read a story. It is a true story. It is also a paradigm. It's a type of a story. It's a story that we're going to read that is about a family that's divided, actually divided from birth. It's always been filled with division. It's a story about the pursuit of true love. Not true love in like the princess bride kind of way, but like, and not true love in even like the Americanized, like I'm going to find my person. But what does it mean to truly love within family, between a couple, between God and us, between Christ and his church? What true love is and what it looks like, because that's what we want to look like and that's what we long for. And the more we know what true loves are, it helps us kind of push to the side the false ones or the temporary ones or the ones that aren't going to actually satisfy. So we're talking about deep love. And that's what I mean by true love. This story is a story about forgiveness. It's a story about desires. It's a story about pursuit. When you want something bad enough that you're willing to fight for it and, and do anything for it, that kind of love that we can experience with each other, but also that God has for us. And we're going to read it in the Old Testament, which is where it happens, but we're going to see it has echoes into the New Testament. It almost replays itself, but in a better way, through Jesus. And so we kind of get to compare and contrast this worldly way of living with division and of pursuing love and of, of forgiving and then Christ's way, God's way, what does that look like? And I hope it will mean something for us as we seek to love those that we are divided from. We are divided from some by belief. They don't believe what we believe. We are divided by, from some because of circumstances, events that have happened which have pushed us apart, and so those circumstances divide us. We're divided from some because of race, or because of gender, social barriers, economic, we're just different than them. Someone's rich and we you know, make a scoffing statement about someone who's rich. Someone's poor or, or homeless. We're like, I don't know if I want to be near them. I don't feel safe. We have lots of divisions. This is all worldly stuff. This is Satan's playground. None of that is from God. God's a God of together, unity, and the real kind of deep love. And so I hope it'll speak to us when we think about the people in our lives either that we're divided from or just the lost that are divided from God. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. And so we'll read it, and then we'll flip over the New Testament and see Jesus, how he, he comes as this wonderful sort of counterpoint to it. We're in Genesis 25. This story is a story about water. It's a story about wells. It's a story about long journeys. It's a story about... Uh, brothers and sisters, and a pursuit of a, of a true, of a deeper love. So we're in Genesis 25, and we're going to start with uh, verse 19. So I'm going to read this section, just you know, a couple paragraphs here in full, and then we're going to skim, just so I can remind us of what the rest of the story is. Otherwise, we'd have to read you know, the rest of the book of Genesis. We'd have to read a little bit from Joshua. You, you would go like that. But really, we're trying to focus on Jesus, right? And where we're going to get the sneak peek, we're, we're going to get to see Jesus sitting at a well with a woman who offers to draw him water. And that story is an echo of this one. This is the story of a woman named Rebecca and twins that she gave birth to. 
These are the generations, Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, who was Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac, when he was 40 years old, when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. This children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, what is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, I mean, lots of moments where God speaks into these stories. Pay attention to those. Prayed, baby came. Why is this happening? God speaks and predicts. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name is called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Division in the family, favoritism by parents, twins that are fighting before they're even born, a family divided. The very next section talks about the impulsiveness of wanting what we want now versus the persistence and the perseverance to live for the long goal, the end game, the long play. Which one is love? Esau here loves a meal more than he loves his inheritance as a family, which also means he loves his meal more than he loves any of his children or grandchildren because what he inherits or doesn't inherit determines what his family will live in or not live in. What authority, what property, what inheritance. He's willing to trade it all for a short love, a quick love, a food. Give me a desire that I want satisfied right now in this moment and I don't care what comes next. What if that was God's love for us? What if God was like, I'm just going to take everyone who's a Christian right now and no matter what, I don't care what happens to anybody else. Rapture, end times, done. The Bible specifically says God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. So God delays the end times for our good because he's not just cared about getting the meal and having his favorites and here's my favorite kids come home. It's like, I love all of them. I love the ones that hate me. There's the long love of God. You know, we call it patience, which is actually our version of the word long-suffering. Real love, the truest kind of love, is not impulsive for the moment. It has the full picture in mind and everyone's benefit in mind, not just our own. So Esau sells his birthright. He's no longer the firstborn. That's as if he didn't come out first. No longer first son, now he's second because he was famished. And maybe to the point of starvation, but which was more important to him, the meal or the inheritance? Okay, so we're going to fast forward, like I said, flip pages or scan down on your phones of what you're doing. Now we have this developing relationship between the two sons. In chapter 27, Isaac blesses Jacob. Now, how does Jacob get his father's blessing? He lies to him. His mother lies, a family divided. You think there's hope for this family? If you grew up in a family where you were fighting with this sibling since birth, divided the entire time, got your inheritance by cheating and scheming your way into the money that wasn't supposed to come to you in the first place. Do you foresee a happy conclusion to this? No, not unless God's involved. But again, this is the human version of what we do. We divide ourselves. We define ourselves differently. 
instead of seeing us how God sees us all. Okay, so there's the inheritance. It's stolen. Uh, Then we have chapter 28. Jacob is sent to Laban. All right, so you've got the inheritance now. You've got the firstborn privileges. You've got all the blessing, but you better get out of here because Esau is going to kill you. Again, the impulsiveness of the anger of the moment versus the view. Esau couldn't see, what if there is a future here? What if there's a bigger play that God's making here through our fracture? This is exactly what was happening, but he could not see it. So Jacob fled for his life. You see in chapter 28, verse 10, it says, Jacob, verse 11, he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night. Taking one of the stones of the place he put it under his head and he lay down and he dreamed and behold there was a ladder set up to earth and the top of it reached heaven and God's angels were ascending and descending and the Lord stood above it and said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall be swept abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south and in you and in your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So he made a pillar, and verse 19 says, He called the name of that place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. And he continues. Verse 29, verse 1 is this wicked understatement. And I had to look it up myself to see. He says, so he went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. It was 500 miles away. Verse 1, he came there. He came there like a a while later. I googled how long it would take to walk 500 miles. And it's about 28 days, maybe. So depending on your speed, your stopping, whatever. We're talking at least like a month of traveling to go where he's trying to go. That's another definition of what truly loving looks like. You will walk 500 miles. It's actually a song that says, isn't there? We'll walk 500 miles, right? And another 500 miles. And he does return home. So he, he walked 1,000 miles, months probably, of traveling because he was in pursuit of what God said to him. And he believed that God's promise would follow him to the foreign land and follow him home. So he goes back to his mother's people And he encounters a woman at a well. Now, this isn't the same well that Jesus encounters a Samaritan, but we're going to see Jacob and a well are actually something the Samaritan woman mentions. She talks about Jacob when she talks with Jesus. She talks about a well, Jacob's well. This is the beginning of something much bigger. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and they would water the sheep and then put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said, is, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. Same time Jesus met the woman at the well, middle of the day. Behold, still, it is high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And then the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. And then we water the sheep. 
I'm going to stop here because there was a time, fast forwarding, where the stone was rolled away and rivers of living water came pouring out. There was a time where eternal water and living water came from the result of moving the stone away. Jesus and Samaritan woman talk about this. They talk about this, and Jesus hints at that. Verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, true love, right? (laughs) Head over heels. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and he watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. And they meet the uncle. They meet Laban. Fast forward a little bit. Verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, but the younger was Rachel. Rachel's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So one was more physically beautiful than the other. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, it's good, better you, a family member, like a long-distant relative, than some stranger? Absolutely. And so they gathered everyone together in verse 22 and made a feast. But he's tricked. He's tricked into marrying Leah. And so Laban's response is, well, I couldn't marry the younger one off without the older one being married. So if you want the younger one, I'll give it to you as a wife as well. But you need to work for me another seven years so verse 28 says, uh, 27, by serving me another seven years. And 28 says, Jacob did so, completing her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be her wife. Verse 30, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So after walking 500 miles, he served 14 years for the woman he loved. It doesn't sound like impulsive love the way we would define love. It doesn't sound like how we, you know, for us, love today is swipe left or swipe right. It's not walk 500 miles and 14 years. But which is a truer love? Which is more lasting? Temporary love, immediate love. He saw her and he fell in love with her on sight. It's love at first sight. But it was true love and he was willing to pay any cost to be with her forever. Right? So we're not going to read much more of this story, but I need to fill you in on the details of what happens between this family, but then also as the descendants. Jacob takes all of his family back after the 14 years and and his flocks, and he has these 12 sons, remember? The youngest one being Joseph at that time. Eventually he has a 13th son, Benjamin, but he has these 12 sons. Joseph gets sold off into slavery, right? He's in Egypt. Eventually they're reunited because of the famine. So Joseph is welcomed back into his family. And instead of Joseph getting his tribal lands back, two of his sons get it and they split it in half. And so the 12th tribe is is a half and a half. The two half tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, two of Jacob's grandsons, but who were born and grew up in Egypt. Those sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, settle in Samaria. 
it becomes their land. All the tribes get their land. Where does the Samaritan woman trace her roots back? To Joseph. The Samaritans have a genealogical track record to Joseph. He's like their patriarch within the Samaritan family. Joseph, one of the greatest people used by God, right? The Samaritans settle, and eventually the nation of Israel, King David, King Solomon, it's overthrown. There's a civil war in the north is overthrown. Samarita, Samaria is in the north. It's overthrown, and a lot of their people get taken away, and a lot of foreigners come in, and they intermarry. And the Jews who are in the south are like, why would you ever live in the north? They fight each other. There's civil war, a family divided. These Samaritans trace their roots back. Do you know that Joseph's last request was that his bones be taken back to his father's homeland and not left in Egypt? Do you know that Joseph's bones are buried like 100 yards, 100 meters, 100, like something, like this close, seeing distance from the well that Jesus and the Samaritan woman were sitting at? Do you know that it says on the day of the Passover when Moses left Egypt, he went and got Joseph's bones and then they left and Pharaoh and his army pursued him. This legacy, the Samaritan woman's legacy of faith is just as strong a claim to God's people as any of the Jews that lived in the south around Jerusalem and in that nation of Judah. But they fought. The ones in the south said, you have this pagan religion. And the ones Samaritans in the north said, yeah, but you Jews don't follow your lineage back like we do. We should worship here. And they eventually set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the north. So you have two temples now, both to the same God, but both feeling like they're the ones doing their religion right. Does that sound like a faith divided? Do you know where modern-day Samaria is? Palestine. Do we still see the nation of Israel divided? against Palestine, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the nation of Israel, to this day. Does that put a little bit of interesting light into God's prophecy? Before those babies were born, they will fight against each other, Esau and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, and they go their separate ways. This Samaritan woman is like a modern-day Palestinian woman talking to an Israeli who doesn't believe that she has a right to live where she lives, that she shouldn't call herself a, a child of God. Deep animosity. It was that way for Jesus. And that's who he sat down and talked to against all social conventions. What would love look like for us if our most bitter opponents or the people we felt the most estranged from or the most different from or had the biggest problem with were the ones we were willing to sit down and talk about a bigger picture. This is where we find Jesus. So we're going to read him and her. This is a love story in John chapter 4. It's a story of how much God loves the world. It's a story of Jesus loving this woman. And the same things we see in the first story are echoed here, but look at how Jesus handles it. Have a heart to love the way Jesus loves this woman, to love each other the same way. It's so beautiful. So in verse 5, John chapter 4, verse 5. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. So we're back. We're back in the same field that Jacob gave to Joseph. Joseph, who is the the, the founding patriarch, say, of the Samaritan sect. I was reading this week that um, the Samaritans only hold to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua. In Joshua, that's the story. The very last verses are where Joseph's bones are buried back there. This is where they trace their lineage. She would not have believed any of the prophets, any of the Psalms, Proverbs, the Samaritan woman. That's not her Bible. Still isn't to this day. But she would know Abraham. She would know Jacob. She would know Joseph. She's living on the land of her forefathers that God gave to Ephraim and Manasseh and passed on down. So... Near that same field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's midday. That's noon. The first hour is six o'clock in the morning, according to the way they did time. You know, sunrise, sort of. And then six hours later. So it's noon. Same time of the day that Jacob um, encountered Rachel. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. But the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water, we know to mean spiritual water from the Spirit, but it also just means running water, living water. And so he's saying, you're just digging from a well here. I could give you living water. And she's looking around, still the way Jesus does. He talks in concepts, and people think that he's talking about the metaphor itself. So she looks around, does not see a river. And verse 11, she says to him, so you have nothing to draw the water from. And the well is deep. Where would you get that running water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, Jacob dug this well. It's still there to this day, by the way. I've never been there to see it, but I was looking at pictures of it this week. That well is there. It's like 100 feet deep. It taps into this spring that's down there, and it is there to this day. Jesus said to her, think bigger. Big picture here, please. Everyone who drinks of this water will just be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Or will never thirst again, depending on your translation. The water that I will give him become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But she's still thinking tangible. Give me the thing that will satisfy my immediate desires. I want this thing now. Give it to me so that then when I want it tomorrow, it'll just always be here. I can always have the things that I want in the moment. Give me temporary water, but give it to me all the time. This is like the false promise of our culture. We can give you the thing that you love and we'll just give it to you again tomorrow, but you're going to be hungry tonight. But don't worry, come back tomorrow. We'll have more of the same temporary stuff for you. It's not true love. You are not loved by the society that you are in. You are used and manipulated and tempted by the society you're in. 
Here, try this. Oh, it didn't satisfy? Here, try this. An unending source of temporariness that could actually cause us to live our entire lives in temporary moments, never actually achieving something greater. This is when we sit at the end of our lives and regret that we just live for everything temporary and the most important things were not what we pursued. So she's still thinking, like, give me this so I can just never be humanly, physically thirsty again. Jesus said to her, well, let's, let's get down to it then, because the reason for thirst is sin. That, that, that's where it comes from, and that's, that's what we're battling with. Will we go to God? Will we not? So let's talk about your relationship. Let's talk about your husband. Go, call your husband, and then come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So yes, what you said is true. And she's like, whoa. She switches her language. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. A couple times before this, in verse 13, the woman said to him, sir. Okay, if you back up verse 11, sir. The first time she addresses him, it's verse 9. She says, how is it that you a Jew? Right? This is the progression of Jesus loving this woman, even though she's against him. It starts off with, who are you a Jew to talk to me? Oh, you're kind. Well, sir, well, then this is how I want to talk. Well, then, sir, what about my immediate needs? Jesus says, I see you. I've always seen you. I'm coming after you. He's treating her as an equal when men didn't treat women as equals. He's treating her as an equal when Jews didn't have any association with Samaritans. He's treating her as, as someone worthy of a conversation. And she says, I see that you are now not just a kind sir. You are a prophet. Her language changes, and you'll see a little bit later, she moves to Christ. She moves to Messiah. She went from the enemy to the, the kind person to the prophet to the Messiah, Jesus' relationship with her. Verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet, so here's my biggest question. Do we have a list? The list of things you're going to ask Jesus when you see him? Anybody got a list? I'm going to like, write it down. Like, oh, here's another one. I've got to make sure that makes it onto the list. Who knows if we even care when we see his glory? But I'm sure if you have a question, I'd be happy to answer it. He knows it all. She goes to her question. You're a prophet. Do you know this answer? Like, am I still in all of my sin because I haven't done sacrifices in Jerusalem? Because all of our people say you've got to sacrifice on Mount Gerizim. Like, how can I be okay? You just pointed out my biggest Problem, the fact that she walked out to this well, again, looking at the geography of it, she had to walk way out of town in the middle of the day to get water. There are lots of springs along the way. There's water in town. This woman is an outcast. This woman has to go out by herself to get her own water to trudge back to town. Sin is like her defining characteristic. It's how she's known. She has a reputation. And it's not a good one. But Jesus sees her. And so she says, let's talk about this sin thing. You, you seem to know something about God. Like, do I have to worship here or do I need to go to Jerusalem? Because I bet at this point she'd convert to Judaism if he asked her. I'll go to Jerusalem because she knows she's not living right. She knows her life hasn't looked good, but she just wants it to be okay. She wants to do what Jesus is going to tell her to do. It could be anything. So here's my question. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, but, but you, your people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Like, like listen, 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 listen. Believe me. 
The hour is coming. So the time is coming. We're on a countdown. The time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. See, he just calls him the Father. She doesn't. But he calls him the Father. And he doesn't differentiate between her father and his. These are both people who have lost their way, and the Father is trying to call them back. The Jews lost their way, and the Samaritans lost their way, and then on their diverging path, they're just warring against each other, and Jesus is saying, the Father is who is going to unite us. Don't worry about where you go to sacrifice your chickens and your bulls, because that's actually not the ultimate way you're going to be forgiven. That's not it. It's, it's me, he says. It's, it's Jesus. So the hour is coming, and believe it, trust it, believe in it. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans are like a lost people. They did not have the whole Old Testament as we do. Like We had so much more prophecy. They didn't have Isaiah to know about the Messiah coming. They didn't have the Psalms to sing the songs of David. They didn't have this wonderful wealth of law and prophets. They just had the law. And we know what it's like to just live under the law. You know what the law says? Failure, 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 failure. That's what the law says. And you just operate in guilt. (laughs) How can I get right? How How can I fix it? It's like, you're worshiping what you don't know, but we do know. We know more than you because we have this further revelation from God. But he said, but the hour is coming and is now here. So he's like, bing, timer's up. This is the hour. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So God's out on a hunt for whoever's going to worship him in their spirit. Right? Spirit is born of spirit. This is an echo of the conversation with Nicodemus as well. We're born of the spirit. But also worship in truth, not in forms. Like the, the reality of what it means to be with God. So the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. So she'd heard about a Messiah. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So he's like, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled. They were astonished that he was talking with a woman. Never mind a Samaritan, but... A woman, and Jesus is breaking down those social barriers. But no one said to him, what do you seek, or or why are you talking to her? They were too probably like uncomfortable to even ask the question. So the woman left her water jar. She came up for water, but she's in such a hurry to get back, she doesn't bring her water back with her. The whole temporary pursuit of physical thirst is like lost. It's like forgotten. And she runs home. She went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? All of a sudden she's preaching. And she says, he told me everything I ever did. So either that's just like a summary or maybe their conversation was way longer. Maybe he didn't stop with the five husbands. Maybe he's like, remember that time where you were a child? Remember that time when you worshiped? Remember that time when you learned this? Like Jesus knows her and she feels it. And however much he revealed to her of that or not, she goes back and says, he told me everything I ever did, but with no guilt. He just told her all her sins. Would we feel not guilty if someone sat us down and be like, these are all the places you've sinned in your life. This is great. I'm going to list all the bad things you've ever done, all the bad thoughts you've ever had. Well, only if we're operating in law. But Jesus comes with grace and says, ah, you want to get rid of all those bad things that you've ever done? Let's do that. How about we have some living water? Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is pursuing this woman, and he sees her, and it doesn't make her, him hate her. 
We always feel like someone's going to hate us if they knew the real us. If someone could see what we think and our judgmental thoughts and our like pettiness and all the things that go on in our little fleshly minds. He doesn't. Jesus does not hate you for your sin. He wants to pursue you. He wants to walk the 500 miles and work the 14 years for you. And he sits down at the well because that's him wooing that woman into the father's family. She's no longer lost. That's the conversation. She doesn't say a sinner's prayer. She doesn't get baptized in a local church. She believes. Woman, believe me. It's not about how you've gone about your religion. It's about if you know the Father. And she gets excited by the revelation of all her sins. If we could be so excited when God shows us our sins and says he loves us at the same time. This is an encounter, man. This is an encounter. So, She's running back into the village. Can we also just stop to notice the disciples are Jesus' people? Wouldn't you think if they went into a village, they'd have more of an opportunity to witness to lots of people than if you stayed outside the village and sat down at a well? Jesus has more impact on that town through the one woman that he met outside of the town than all the disciples who went into the town with their preconceived ideas of what they were there for. We're here to get food. We're here among these foreign people. Their limitations made them ineffective to reach that town for Christ. And Christ just sits down at a well outside and meets one woman, and she goes and evangelizes the whole place. The book of Acts uses this approach. It suggests that the disciples go out and look for towns and find one person that's a networked person and connected with an entire community of themselves. Show them Jesus. It calls them a person of peace. This is a, a strategy given by God for how we are to introduce the world to the gospel. Don't try to get a congregation of 10,000. Meet the right person who has 100 friends. When one person's on fire, they run. They forget what they were doing. <laughs> they left their water behind. I'm sure she's still thirsty. She went because she was thirsty. She walked a long way to get. She doesn't remember. She does not remember that she's not about the thirst anymore. Now it's about the soul. Like There's something that's happening here. Jesus is happening here. This is a very important thing for us to think about when we think about how we're going to love the world around us. Will it be through mass events or will it be through the one? I think Jesus' approach is always like, meet the one, see the one, love the one, and then avalanche. So she says that to the town of verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he also isn't hungry in the same way that woman's not thirsty anymore. They had a God encounter. You don't really think about the normal stuff when something feels so real. <laughs> like when you're in love, you don't think about stuff. You forget to eat. You forget to like, do anything. You're, just, you're, you're, you're obsessively focused on something that has like captured your heart. That's a cool definition of faith. That's a cool definition of Jesus' love for us. And in this moment, he's just not hungry. It's like, this is satisfying. You want to talk about satisfying? Yeah, sure. Great. You brought me some food. I could eat that food. But my food is actually to do the will of the Father. So he teaches them now what it means to really eat and drink. And doesn't it remind you of Jesus in the wilderness? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Doesn't it remind you of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled like this. This is like a pond with ripples. This is a, an echo chamber, and it just connects backwards and forwards, but it's God's love. It's true love. So they were urging him, but he said, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples turned to one another. Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. This is mission. 
God has sent us to do his work. It's his work. We don't know what we'll just follow, but that's mission. Jesus understood he was sent. And he turns to the disciples, don't you say, look, there's four more months and then a harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. Lift up your eyes and see. Lift up your eyes. And he wants them to open their eyes to see her the way he sees her, to see the Samaritans the way God sees them. Open your eyes. Just look around you. Lift up your eyes. See that the fields are ripe for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. We enter into what God is already doing in the world. We have a small part. We want to take credit. We have a white rose. We celebrate as if we did something. God's been working and wooing and running the 500 there and the 500 miles back and spending the 14 years in his pursuit of a person that we get to enter into the labor at the end and harvest and say, oh, God bless, like someone's into the... No! Not our kingdom. Not our power. Not our right. Our role is just to be part of God's sentness. Carry on Christ's mission. Even the disciples need to be reminded of this. So many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed because of his word. It went from being just the word of some woman to actually they met Jesus. And this is what we talked about with our families and friends. We need people to have Christ increase in them, not just become reliant upon us. So Christ increases in all their lives. They form a relationship with him. It wasn't just, oh, I heard from someone that Jesus is good. It's like, no, they met him. He saw them. So many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves. Parents, wouldn't this be beautiful to hear from your kids at some point? It's no longer because of what you said. We have heard from God. Wouldn't this be beautiful for your neighbor? I know you've been telling me about Jesus, but it's no longer because of what you said. It's because of what we've heard now. Right? They got there. Jesus brought them full circle. It is no longer just because of what Christians talk. Lots of people talk, but we heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, not just the Redeemer for the Jews, a Savior of the world. So after two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. I just want us to have a love that looks like worship and a worship that looks like love and not to separate those two things. When your love for your spouse, for your kids, for your neighbors looks like worship and it requires and demands and enables you to pursue it with all your heart, then all of a sudden your love has taken it to Jesus' lance. His love was worship. And when your worship within Christian looks like love instead of looking like formality or looking like have to, but looks like, I love being able to worship God together. When it looks like that, then it's ceased just being worshiped. Behold, there's a time coming where it's not going to be about worshiping in this church or that church. And it's not going to be about the right way or the wrong way to sacrifice for atonement for sins. It's going to be about, are you connected to the Father? Because he's everybody's Father, whether you admit it or not whether you love him or not. It's going to be about whether your spirit is connected to the Father 
and the love you have for him looks like a worship. Worship is translated sometimes just as work because they had to work to sacrifice animals. So when they went and did worship, sometimes it was just labor. But the other word for it is falling down in your face, just adoration. So may our love for the people in our lives look like just adoring and affection as well as being willing to do anything for them. And may our love for God look exactly the same way. I adore you, Father. We sing praises, we raise our hands, we bow down, but I'm willing to do anything for you. May our depth of love be Christ's as we reach out to the people that we may be divided from ourselves. Let's say a word of prayer, and then I'll have uh, Jane come up, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what God's doing here at the church. Because it is our worship to serve him, and it is our love, and he is pursuing us for sure. It's up to us to say, okay, it's not just because someone said it, but I'm hearing something. So we'll just take a few minutes, not a long meeting, but information and a little bit of discussion, and then we'll, we'll go. But let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for pursuing me. Thank you that you've said things to me that aren't just my parents or my church or my religion that I've heard from them. I thank you for everyone in this room that is not just believing you because of someone else who they trust, but who has heard from you on their own. Please, Jesus, continue to pursue us because we all, like sheep, we go astray. And we need you to be our good, good shepherd and just wrangle us in and usher us towards the Father. May you continue to make this place a place of worship and of love, of pursuit and of passion, a place of forgiveness, a place of eternal life versus temporary pleasure. Continue to lead our church family in that way as you lead us through the seasons that you are taking us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.